Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that builds hope from the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. There is far more to life than food and far more to the body than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They are free and unfettered, careless in the care of God. And you count far more to God than birds. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They never primp or shop, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and kindling for the oven tomorrow, how much more will you be clothed, you of little faith? Therefore, do not consume yourself, yourselves with questions. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who make themselves frantic over such questions. God knows exactly what you need. Instead, seek first the reality of God and the right relationship that comes with it. You will find that you have everything you need. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have a history with this passage of Scripture. It's one of the first pieces of Scripture that I learned as a kid. Now, let me be clear. I did not technically memorize this Scripture, nor did I learn it with noble intentions. Being raised in and around the church, I recognized early on that there were going to be occasions when I would be called on to share my favorite scripture or a passage that meant a lot to me, regardless of whether it be in a Sunday school class or on a retreat or at a youth gathering, what I could count on was that at some point, the share your favorite scripture spotlight was going to come to me and I wanted to be ready. The truth is, I didn't have a favorite verse. Other than the Lord's Prayer, which I'm not sure I even realized was Scripture, I didn't have any Bible verses memorized, and I didn't really have a lot of interest in changing that. What I needed was an answer, something that would satisfy the question and get the spotlight off of me and onto someone else. There were a couple of kids around me who determined the path of least resistance and memorized John 11.35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. These geniuses would declare Jesus wept as their favorite verse, spew out a few words about how they related being sad, and suddenly they were off the hook. It was brilliant. My problem was that they thought of it before I did. So when I heard an adult refer to this passage from Matthew 6 as the do not worry scripture, I wasted no time in claiming it as my favorite scripture. All I had to do was memorize three words, do not worry, and talk about how I didn't like to worry, and Matthew 6, 25 became the answer I needed. It wasn't even untrue. I didn't like to worry. I agreed with what I thought Jesus was saying. It was as if 
he and I agreed that everyone should calm down and relax. That's what I thought this passage was about. Now, to be clear, I hadn't actually read Matthew 6 or engaged it in any way. I just memorized the important phrase and decided that I had it mastered. What I didn't realize at the time was that I'd applied my first hermeneutic to the scripture. I didn't even know what a hermeneutic was. A hermeneutic is simply the way we interpret spiritual or philosophical writings like the biblical texts. It's the methodology we use, the worldview we apply, the consciousness we bring with us. Think of it this way. Our hermeneutic is the lens through which we examine the scripture to find meaning. The interpretive tools that help us make sense of ancient texts that often seem out of reach and confusing. Now, we all do this all the time, every time we engage the scripture. It is impossible to read or hear a biblical text without a hermeneutic. In truth, we aren't even limited to just one. We operate with numerous interpretive filters at the same time, different lenses simultaneously shading what we see and understand. And lest we think this is a new phenomenon or an exclusively Christian practice, human beings all over the world have been wrestling with their interpretive lenses for thousands of years. For over 2,500 years, the practice of Buddhism has encouraged the use of only those hermeneutics that move people towards spiritual enlightenment and awakening. 2,400 years ago, the Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote Peri Hermeneus, or On Interpretation, to explore how hermeneutic tools navigate the relationship between language and logic. For over 2,000 years, our Jewish brothers and sisters have used the hermeneutic technique of interpreting one scripture through the lens of another. This is called a remez, which is a hint or directional arrow within a scripture that points to another text. An easily recognizable example of remez is how John starts his gospel with the words, in the beginning, thereby directing his audience to interpret his gospel through the lens of another text that starts with the same words, the creation poems of Genesis 1 and 2. 1,600 years ago, Augustine, an early Christian theologian and church leader, advised approaching the Bible with a hermeneutic based in humility, love, and a studied knowledge of the signs and symbols implicit in the Scripture. In the 18th century, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement and hermeneutic, encouraged bringing the interpretive lenses of tradition, experience, and reason to the scripture. Franciscan priest Father Richard Rohr recommends what he calls a Jesus hermeneutic, a lens that connects the dots of God's overarching story in order to move toward mercy, nonviolence, and inclusivity as Jesus did. My friend, the wise rabbi Chris Estes, uses a hermeneutic that he calls the smell test. Chris says, if it smells like love, then you're probably on the trail of God. Now, as a kid, my hermeneutic was that I needed a verse I could memorize and repeat with the least amount of effort. That and only that 
was the lens through which I looked at the Bible. As you can imagine, my childhood hermeneutic limited my understanding. It left the little chicken on the bone, so to speak. I didn't actually understand the passage at all. If anything, in reducing Jesus into some sort of detached hippie, telling everyone to chill out, I had actually misinterpreted the scripture. Our hermeneutic matters. In the last several weeks, I've been exposed to a number of well-meaning Christians quoting and reducing this very passage from Matthew, just like I did as a child. If you've been on social media recently, you may have even come across one of these spiritual McNuggets on Instagram or Facebook. The general conclusion is that our fear and anxiety can and should be turned off like a switch by a sheer act of our will, and that if we don't turn our anxiety off, then we don't have faith. I've had conversations with earnest disciples in the last month who, because of this kind of social media spirituality, were fearful that the very real presence of anxiety and worry in their lives meant that they were somehow failing God. They were worried about their worry, anxious about their anxiety. Friends, these McNuggets may be easy and tasty, but they're not good for us. This teaching from Jesus should not be reduced to if you're afraid, you don't trust God. Jesus is not offering his followers an equation to balance. This is not a transaction. Our hermeneutic matters. If we're not aware of our hermeneutics, aware of the lenses through which we examine and engage the scripture, we can almost be guaranteed that we are going to misread, mishear, misunderstand, and misapply it. For example, the entirety of the biblical canon is written by the small minority tribe living under the boot of imperial oppression. Not one book in the Bible is written by the ancient Egyptians. Not one verse comes from the ancient Assyrians or Babylonians. Not one word comes to us from the pen of Caesar or Rome. As Walter Brueggemann teaches, the Bible does not contain the voice of the empire. It's the minority report. It's the voice of the small, fledgling tribe that somehow survived the slavery of ancient Egypt, the exile and oppression of Assyria and Babylon, and the murder and torture of Rome. If nothing else, when I pick up the Bible, one of my hermeneutics needs to be to remind myself that as a well-fed, well-clothed, non-disabled, educated, empowered, resourced, white, cisgender, straight, male, middle-class American, I have some work to do to engage and wrestle with the voice of the oppressed minority found within its pages. Which brings me back to this passage. How does this rabbi, Jesus, teach his followers, the oppressed minority under the boot of Rome, not to worry? He's asking these people, many of whom Rome would eventually kill, to consider birds and flowers. Seriously? 
That sounds like one of those spiritual McNuggets for Instagram. It just doesn't add up. Something tells me that there is still work to do with this passage, that the lens through which I am looking still needs adjustment. Our hermeneutic matters. As a first century Jew and rabbinical student of Jesus, Matthew no doubt studied and wrestled with the scripture. What sort of hermeneutic tools did he use? What do we know about his consciousness, his worldview? As he recounts these teachings of Jesus through what interpretive lens is Matthew writing? Biblical scholars such as Robin Griffith Jones and Alexander John Shia have helped us recover much of the historical context for Matthew's gospel. To begin, it was most likely written to the Jewish community in Antioch on the Orontes in the mid-70s CE, some 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. The city of Antioch on the Orontes was about a week's walk due north of Jerusalem. Throughout the centuries, that proximity to Jerusalem meant that any time things became dangerous in Jerusalem, Jews would escape to Antioch. Antioch's Jewish population eventually grew to the point that its synagogue was referred to as the Second Temple. In fact, the synagogue in Antioch even housed items from Solomon's temple, items that had been smuggled out of Jerusalem when Solomon's temple was destroyed in 587 BCE. It is important to remember that the besiegement of Jerusalem, the desecration or destruction of the temple, the escape of some of the Jews to Antioch on the Orontes, the eventual return of the exile and the rebuilding of the temple, these were not one-time events. This cycle happened repeatedly with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and just before the writing of Matthew's gospel, the Romans. In the summer of 70 CE, under orders from the Roman emperor Vespasian to annihilate the temple and end the biological line of the Jewish priesthood, by murdering all the temple priests, the Roman army laid siege to Jerusalem in an attempt to bring about the end of the Jewish faith. The Jews who were able to escape fled to Antioch on the Orontes. Their priests had been murdered, their holy city had been razed, and the temple, the structure built to house the presence of God, had been destroyed. It's to these circumstances and these people the refugee inhabitants of Antioch who have just lost everything that Matthew writes his gospel. These people had plenty to worry about. And just that little bit of context changes my hermeneutic. Considering the circumstances and people to which Matthew writes shifts the lens through which I can wrestle with this passage about worrying our hermeneutic matters. Let me offer for your, for your consideration something we might not have previously been able to see. There's an odd word choice in verse 27 of this passage. Our English translation has Matthew quoting Jesus as saying, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? The word we translate as hour is actually the Greek word pechis, which means cubit. 
So to be clear, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, can any of you by worrying add a single cubit to your life? Now, cubit was an ancient standard of measurement that was roughly 18 inches or the average length of an adult forearm. It's a word that's used throughout the Hebrew Bible. In fact, depending on the translation, there are over 160 verses in the Bible that use the word cubit. Now, while there are scholars who justify interpreting the word cubit in Matthew 6 as an hour by indicating that it could describe a span of time in the same way it describes a span of distance, an overwhelming majority of the biblical uses of cubit deal with distance, not time. For that matter, it would have been much less confusing to simply say, can any of you by worrying add a single day to your life? using the Greek word himera, which gets used over 40 times in Matthew's gospel. Cubit, on the other hand, is only used once in the entire gospel, right here. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single cubit to your life? What if the choice of cubit is a remez? What if that word was chosen as a hint, a directional arrow to point toward another scripture or scriptures that will provide interpretation. Try this hermeneutic on for size. Of the 162 cubit containing verses in the NIV translation of the Bible, at least 126 of those verses are actually detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant all structures built by humans to house and contain and preserve their relationship with God. So in Matthew's original audience, refugees who have fled Jerusalem to Antioch on the Orontes, people who have lost everything, including, once again, the temple their tribe had built and rebuilt cubit by cubit according to the specifications found hundreds of times in their scripture, Where do we think their minds went when Jesus asked, can any of you by worrying add a single cubit to your life? To the temple. I think it's safe to say that you could not use the word cubit with an ancient Israelite without summoning up the lens of the temple. Even King Solomon, the king who completed the first temple, gets a mention to make sure hearers of Matthew's gospel connect the dots. In speaking of the lilies of the field in verse 29, Jesus says, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. At the very least, it's a possibility that the mention of Solomon and the peculiar usage of the word cubit here are meant to be a remez, an interpretive hint, a hermeneutic offering to help Matthew's audience wrestle with meaning and their anxiety in the face of the temple ruins that laid behind them. I don't know about you, but I can relate to watching temples fall, to looking out over ruins. I can relate to the anxiety such visions produce to the worry of not knowing what comes next. Since the times of King Solomon, the temple Matthew's audience now anxiously mourn had been built 
and sacked, fixed up and stripped, rebuilt and completely destroyed, remodeled and ultimately razed to the ground. A thousand years of generations had labored in building it, worried over maintaining it, and anxiously rebuilt it, habitually, addictively, cubit by cubit by cubit. The temple is a hermeneutic they know in their bones. And our hermeneutic matters. Within his interpretations of the Gospel of Matthew, theologian and scholar Alexander John Shia writes, Sometimes our temples are inherited, easily becoming family traditions. Sometimes we build them. We count on them no matter what they are. We consider them central, solid, and sacred. We yearn to make them secure and expand great effort in attempts to make them so. They have genuine roles in our lives, but we are sometimes forced to discover that they have no real permanence. No matter how we got them, when our temples come under attack, it can be terrifying. And when our temples are destroyed, it's devastating. We are afraid. We are anxious. We are unsure about what comes next. We worry about what caused this chaos, and we are desperate to once again rebuild our temples. But is that what we are called to do? Will it add even an hour to our lives? Matthew's audience in Antioch on the Orontes must not have thought so. They did not rebuild their temple. They laid down that anxiety, followed the Christ, and built something new. We, too, are invited to follow. And as we find ourselves looking out over the ruin of our fallen temples, may we hear these words from the creator of all things. Do not worry. You are more beautiful and treasured than the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And even Solomon in all his glory does not compare to them. If we are anxiously and addictively tempted to rebuild our temples without facing the reality that they failed to contain or preserve that which they were built to bless, may we heed these instructions from the Christ. Do not worry. Instead, seek first the reality of God and the right relationship that comes with it. And should the rubble and debris around us cause us to feed our fear and believe we cannot possibly survive without the temples that lay in ruins behind us, may the whisper and power of the Spirit that dwells within all of us cause us to rest and remember this God does not dwell in a temple. This God dwells with us. And this God knows exactly what we need. Our hermeneutic matters because cubit by cubit, it will reveal that which we could not see before.